Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Good morning. It's good to see you. Good to have you with us here this morning as we turn to God's Word. Over the last few weeks together, we have been exploring this gray zone time in which we seem to find ourselves as a society. It's a gray zone. It's not black or white. It feels like we're moving away from something that we knew and into something that we are just beginning to know and understand. It feels like there's something new coming, but it's not yet in sharp focus. Culture and technology are moving at warp speed, and so much around us feels new and surprising. And so perhaps we're a little surprised when we see Scripture remind us that there's actually nothing brand new under the sun. The things that seem and feel new might actually be older or familiar things showing up in a new way. When Jesus was about to return to heaven after his resurrection from the dead, he met with his followers and gave them a mission. He said, I want you to go. I want you to go right down the street here in Jerusalem. I want you to go beyond these streets and even to the ends of the earth. And I want you to preach and teach in my name and baptize and make disciples and teach people my ways. And in the book of Acts that we've been looking into together, we see how that mission unfolded in the earliest years and decades of the Christian church. And as we've looked at the book of Acts, we see that that early church actually was living in a gray zone themselves. And it seems that many of the cultural and societal realities that they faced mirror those that we face today. They encountered and shaped and were shaped by three streams of culture that we've been examining together during these weeks. These are the streams of complexity, consumerism, and chaos. And last week we saw that our culture is complex, complex in that it's made up of many individual parts. And these parts have connections that may not be readily understood. We saw last week that the answer to how how the church can and should navigate a complex culture is actually to stay connected, to resist that urge and impulse to break down, to atomize into individual parts, to be our own person disconnected from the body and from our neighbors. The church was always meant to be a whole a body, an organism, and it only survives and flourishes when it's whole and intact. And we saw that our culture desperately needs a whole and healthy, connected and connectional community in the church today. And this week we shift our focus to the stream of consumerism. Because it's not hard to see that our culture has done a pretty good job of training us to believe that what we need to do is to buy and consume as much as possible. To buy and consume more than we need, which thanks to cheap goods and services is relatively easy for many of us to do. We're told we need to do our part in supporting our economy by spending, not by saving, not by giving, but by spending. And while personal debt isn't necessarily held up, or encouraged, well, if we rack up big credit card bills, at least we're helping the banks. Consumption 
is held up as something that's our right and, in fact, our responsibility. And time itself, maybe our, our most precious resource, we're told is yet another thing that we can just consume and use and spend, even to fritter away, thoughtlessly. If one TV show is good, why not binge five more? It's not like we have more important things or more meaningful things to do with our time. Now, I know this is sounding pretty cynical, pretty negative, but I think we have to admit that this, this is what our culture is teaching us. This is the challenge that's very real and, in fact, insidious for us as followers of Christ and in the church these days. We look at what was going on in the early church in the book of Acts, and we see that the Christians then often faced persecution. And we look around at our world today in other places around the globe, and we see that our brothers and sisters are facing persecution for their faith, and we need to be faithful in keeping them in prayer. But here in the modern West, I think we have to conclude that, that we're more likely to fall by the temptation of consumerism, by the seduction of overspending, than we're, our, than we're likely to face serious persecution. We are oppressed in our own way, but we're oppressed by actually getting what we want. We do it to ourselves. It's a case of self-inflicted overindulgence that if we look faithfully at Scripture, we see is absolutely antithetical to the call of Jesus to love our neighbors as ourselves and to sacrifice on their behalfs. And so instead, we numb ourselves against the joy of living in true connection with one another as the church and in true connection to our neighbors whom we're called to love in Christ's name. If we look at Acts chapter 5, we find a chilling portrait, an early picture of a couple who seem to want things both ways. This married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who seem to want to enjoy the connected community of the church but also wanted to hold back, at least partially, to a sense of, of consumerism, of self-absorption. So let's read their story beginning in verse 1 of Acts 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And we read in Acts 2 that the church in that time was uh, in the practice of having members sell property to keep the church Sustain, but more importantly, to keep one another cared for. So they sold this property, and with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the, at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, 
How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, this is quite a contrast to the story we looked at last week in Acts chapter 2. There we, seemed to, we saw the believers living in what seemed to be blissful harmony, caring for one another, responding to the work of God in their midst, freely sharing all they had. We're told they were enjoying the favor of all the people. And we saw that God blessed them by adding daily to the number of those who were being saved through the faithful witness of the church. And now here, just three chapters later, the Lord strikes two people dead. And the church is seized with great fear, and all who hear are not moved to awe, but are instead paralyzed with fear and wondering what's going on. And those who uh, have written about this passage say uh, it's, it's a pretty harsh one. It's, it's written by Luke, and so he has the, a doctor's clinical precision to describe these events and to describe people dropping dead. And we see Peter, who really seems to be laying this fatal trap for Sapphira. We might wonder what's going on, but there's a sense that Peter and others in the church knew exactly how serious they had to take this. They realized that this, that this incident might lead to a cancerous growth of self-absorption and consumerism within the church itself. And we see in this account how insidious selfishness and greed can be. Ananias and Sapphira weren't any, under any obligation to give the full proceeds of the sale of this property to the church. Peter makes that clear. It was only when they lied about doing so that they got into trouble. And so we don't know much about this couple. Maybe they had seen what happened when people sold property and brought the proceeds to the church. They saw how that blessed the church, but they also saw how the people who were donors were thanked, maybe praised, maybe put on a bit of a pedestal. We don't know. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira wanted the perks of looking like they were deeply and sacrificially connected to the church while holding on to a secret financial safety net. We don't know enough about them to fully understand their motivations, but for some reason, they chose to lie about what they were giving and donating to the church. Now, if we think about our own case, we may not face this temptation. We may not be tempted to lie about our financial giving to the church, but I think we have to admit that it's very easy for us to be tempted to focus more on our security than on selflessness. That temptation is very real and still very much alive 2,000 years after Ananias and Sapphira. And in my studies in the book of Acts, I've continued to appreciate the writings and reflections of William Willimon, who in his commentary regarding this account concludes, in this very first crisis to hit the young church, unfaithfulness and deception are as close at hand as the community's own life. There's something quite natural about the lies of Ananias and Sapphira, for we all know the ways we rationalize and excuse 
our own covetousness, acquisitiveness, and greed. I'm not really that well off, we say. I'm just trying to make ends meet. I worked hard for this and deserve it. And our lies correlate to our materialism, for both our materialism and our own self-deceit are attempts to deal with human insecurity, our human finitude, by taking matters into our own hands. Willeman goes on, Martin Luther once called security the ultimate idol. And we have shown time and time and again that we are willing to exchange anything, our family, our health, our church, the truth, for a taste of security. This self-securing mentality is at the heart of all failures to live by faith in God. Self-securing mentality. Standing in opposition to our call to live by faith in a God who provides. So it seemed that Ananias and Sapphira wanted to help the church. They wanted the satisfaction of being known for helping the church but they craved security. And in the process, they ended up idolizing both a good reputation in the church and the ability to take care of themselves without having to rely fully on God. And again, we might not be tempted to lie about our financial giving, but we're surely tempted to place our faith in a self-secured security. And we see that that temptation is absolutely stoked by our culture's focus on consumerism, because how will we be able to, folk to keep consuming if we run out of money? So we need to make sure we always have enough. We always need to look out for ourselves, is what culture tells us. Now, I suppose we could always just hope to win the lottery, right? That would make things simple. But as it turns out, winning millions in the lottery actually isn't always what it's cracked up to be. Studies have revealed a condition called sudden wealth syndrome, which might sound pretty good. <laughs> but this is when people feel guilty that they were the ones to win the lottery against astronomical odds. And even if they don't feel guilty, it's been proven that lottery winners, when it comes to large payouts, face incredible emotional and psychological turmoil. They face constant requests for help. There are strained family dynamics. There's financial and even physical targeting by people who come to discover who they are. And one study suggests, and I'll quote from that study, eventually boredom can be a problem. People often are wired to work and achieve personal or financial goals. And when winning the lottery eliminates the need to work, the desire to indulge in pleasures often fills the void left by pursuing achievements. When the luxury items are purchased and the vacations are taken, the excitement wears off and it's easy to have a feeling of, now what? According to the National Endowment for Financial Education, 70% of lottery winners go bankrupt within five years. Obtaining more money leads to careless spending and a desire to get even more. And the greed can be destructive to the lives of winners and their families. And this makes us think that Jesus probably knew what he was talking about when he explained to the young man the dangers of wealth and how challenging it can be to be rich and to be a, pers a 
person of the kingdom. And we see that wealth in our culture, even though it's held up as a, a ticket to security, is even shown by secular studies to have potential dangers. But we recognize that there actually isn't much in our current cultural landscape that puts any curbs on consumerism. We're encouraged to keep on getting so that we can keep on spending. We're encouraged to take in, to use, to consume everything we can, resources, knowledge, experiences, opportunities. And we're even encouraged to use and consume other people thoughtlessly and selfishly. We encounter a person and think, what can this person do for me? And this is actually the essence of pornography, using another person, even if it's just their image, for our own personal pleasure. And pornographers who argue that their clients are, are doing what they want, doing what they choose by choice to make a living, clearly don't understand that the images they produce are of human beings created in the very image of God. So we can ask, how is the church called to respond to this cultural stream, the stream of consumerism? And I think our church is going, our, our response is going to require a pivot. A pivot away from consuming resources selfishly and using other people for our own benefit to serving other people and to stewarding resources for the mutual benefit of the church and the neighbors that the church is called to bless. And this pivot will call us to two very countercultural movements, temperance and simplicity, kind of old-fashioned words. Temperance, or moderation, flies in the face of a consumer culture that cries out that if something is good, then more of it must be even better. Temperance says, a little might actually be enough. Temperance is even bold enough to suggest a little might actually be best. Temperance means putting things in their right place, putting things to their proper use rather than misusing or abusing anything or anyone. And likewise, simplicity represents a form of resistance to culture's tendencies toward consumption and complexity. Cluttered lives are rarely joyful lives. Simplicity invites us to strip away the clutter, the chaff of life. It sharpens our focus on what is truly essential. Simplicity invites us to consider whether we need 12 of something when one or two might do just fine. And as we make these dual moves toward temperance and simplicity, we sense that that opens up space for generosity and service to take their place. Simplicity and temperance are the call of the church to serve rather than to consume. And as we move from consumption to service, we, we find that we move into the kingdom of God into which Jesus welcomes us. As kingdom people, we're called to pivot from using others to serving them so that through our actions and interactions with them, they might actually discover God's love for themselves. I mentioned last week that there was a group recently of about 35 of us staff members, and ministry team members, church members, who gathered 
to listen intentionally for God's spirit to move in us and, and invite us to a deeper understanding of why we exist as Bethany Covenant Church. And it was an amazing, amazingly spirit-led day, and the outcome of that day was a statement that we connect and serve so that generations discover and experience the transforming love of God. That's the purpose we've been called to. And we see in this statement that, that this purpose is, yes, for ourselves, but it's mostly for the benefit of others. Within a culture geared for consumerism, we choose to pivot towards service instead because we want more people among more generations to discover and experience for themselves God's transforming love. And as we serve, we know that service can be fun. We've understood, come to know that service is incredibly fulfilling, but we have to be honest that service always costs us something. Service requires us to pour something out of ourselves, some resource, some ability, almost always our time, our most precious resource of all. Culture is prompting us to take in, to accumulate, to use, to expend for ourselves. And the call of Christ is to serve and pour out sacrificially. It postures us toward investing in other people. And if we were to look at it from the outside looking in, it might look like someone else is benefiting and we are in fact diminishing. And so it can be hard. But we have an incredible model to follow in this life of sacrificial service. Because we have a, a savior whom we follow who poured out of himself, pouring out even his life so that we can be saved. He sacrificed throughout his lifetime. We see in the Gospels that, that Jesus poured out tangible acts of selfless, selflessness for others. He shared his time. He shared his power. He took on a servant's role and washed the feet of his disciples. He held loosely to everything he had. The one thing he grasped was a dogged commitment to follow and obey his father and to serve the people whom the Father put in his path. And so my prayer is that as we pivot in this stream of consumerism and swim upstream a bit through acts of service and love and sacrifice, that we'd keep our eyes on Jesus as our model, that we'd learn from him, and that we'd see that as he invites us to follow him, we will be asked to pour out what we've been given and it will be truly beautiful in his name. Would you pray with me? Jesus, our Lord, our master, our teacher, our model, our savior, would you show us ways that we have gone with the flow of our culture, ways that we've slipped into patterns and practices of consumerism when you call us actually to spend ourselves so that others would be blessed, would you grant us a renewal in your spirit to keep us faithful? We thank you for the joy that is ours as we follow you, and we pray this in your holy name. Amen.